Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Harbor Church. And our sermon passage this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. You'll find it printed for you there in your worship guide. Uh, and if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. I invite you to stand that we might honor God's word as we hear it read. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through... Uh, my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we're working our way through the book of Romans, which is Paul's really the capstone of his theological exposition of the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you may recall that a few weeks ago, Ryan mentioned that preaching through Romans can be a very, very daunting task. And so it's recommended that you be a pastor for at least 10 years before you decide to preach through it. And that Ryan's now finally ready. And by that math, I'll be ready in 2019. But here I am, so please bear with me. Our passage today comes in the middle of this extended case that Paul has been making in Romans to explain how it is that God's righteousness can be reconciled with human sinfulness. And in chapter 3, Paul actually looks at two ways that we respond to God's justice, and he does so in the context of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now, on the surface, that may not seem like a particularly important issue for us today, since we don't think about Jew-Gentile distinctions as part of our daily lives very often. 
But as we consider it more closely, we're going to see just how relevant God's word is for us. In the first half of the passage, Paul addresses a way that we subtly try and attack God's justice. And then in the second half of the passage, he deals with how we try to avoid God's justice. And I actually want to start with that second half, with us looking at verses 9 through 20. Because I think as we understand the issues there, it will actually help us make more sense of the questions that Paul works through in verses 1 through 8. So what's going on in verses verses 9 through 20? Paul is addressing what he sees as a very typical Jewish misunderstanding of God's covenant relationship with them. Well, what is the nature of God's covenant relationship with the Jewish people in particular? We're going to need a little bit of background here if we want to understand the context that Paul is speaking into. Otherwise, this argument won't make very much sense for us. And so it's important to understand that in the book of Genesis, God chose to make a covenant with one man, Abraham, that he would be his God and the God of his descendants after him, uniquely out of all the peoples of the world. Later, God reinforced his particular commitment to this particular group of people by making another covenant through Moses, which established Israel as God's holy nation, separate from all the other nations of the world. And God gave to Israel his law that would help them to reflect God's own righteous character to the rest of the world. And the law included certain moral imperatives, uh, things that we would just consider ordinary moral behavior, but it also had particular features that marked Israel out as different from other nations. Practices like circumcision or certain dietary laws, not eating pork, for example. Uh, they, were, uh, they didn't eat with, uh, with Gentiles. And they kept the Sabbath. There was a day that they treated as unique, and they wouldn't do work on that day, even if all the other nations around them would do that work. And these kinds of practices tended to be the things that were very visible to everyone in the community, and they could easily become a badge of honor for Jews, and in particular, even in Paul's case as he's writing here in Romans, even to Jewish Christians within the church. So, in verse 9, Paul asks the question, What then? Are we Jews any better off? And what he's really asking is this. Surely, when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we can take pride in the fact that we're going to fare better than the Gentiles will, right? And Paul's answer, his clear answer is, no, not at all. That's a little shocking for God's people to hear. And then to prove his point in verses 10 through 18, He uses seven different passages from the Old Testament to show the universal sinfulness, not just of those other people, but of all people, including God's own people. One New Testament author has written a paraphrase of this passage, and here are just a few examples of his selections from verses 10 through 18. Good people are more scarce than Twinkies at a 7-Eleven. Their throats are like a graveyard during a zombie apocalypse. Their tongues practice more deceit than all the governors of Illinois combined. (laughs) These are not exactly the kinds of verses that people tend to hang embroidered on the wall of their living room, are they? These are the kinds of verses that we like to say about other people not to hear used to describe us. 
But that's exactly the reason that Paul makes his point so emphatically, is to counter this notion that having received God's law and being marked out by him somehow puts you on a better footing before God the judge. But you could see how someone could come to this kind of a misunderstanding. God has given us a special favor. He's marked us out as different from the other nations. And as we daily show how we're different, we begin to take pride in our privileged position. We begin to look down on the Gentiles because, well, we're better than them. And so to drive the point home, Paul cuts to the heart of the matter in verse 20. The privilege of knowing what God requires of you is not going to help you demonstrate your innocence before God on the day of judgment. To the contrary, the more you understand what God requires of you, the more guilty you should recognize yourself to be before God. God chose Abraham to bring God's blessing to the rest of the nations, not so that his descendants might take pride in their position before God and look down on Gentile sinners as if they weren't sinners themselves. So, what does this passage then have to say to the church today when we don't think in terms of this Jew-Gentile distinction? Well, the truth is, things haven't really changed that much. If Jesus' teaching has been a blessing to you, then you start to enjoy the privileges that he offers. And you're quick to notice how you're different than people who don't know Jesus. And if you're not careful, without ever even consciously realizing it, you start to think that you're better than them. You appreciate that Jesus forgives sinners, but you do tend to feel a certain sense of satisfaction when other people get what's coming to them. And before you know it, an us-versus-them mentality starts to take root in your heart, and your confidence in your own position before God leads you to look down on others so that you think they're more guilty before God than you are. And that's precisely what Paul is describing here. Earlier this week, a reporter from Time Magazine's Washington Bureau posted an article online with the headline, The Imago Dei Campaign, Evangelical Groups Say Gays Made in God's Image. What had happened was that on Monday, there was this new um, movement of prominent Christian evangelical groups who launched a campaign that at its centerpiece had this simple pledge. I recognize that every human being in and out of the womb carries the image of God without exception. Therefore, I will treat everyone with love and respect. And to further clarify the implications that these leaders uh, had by signing this pledge, their website states, for the image of God exists in all human beings, black and white, rich and poor, straight and gay, conservative and liberal, victim and perpetrator, citizen and undocumented, believer and unbeliever. Now, from a biblical perspective, there's nothing remotely controversial about such a statement. But it's very illuminating about how the church tends to engage the broader culture that statements like this end up being so newsworthy. Whenever a social controversy erupts, regardless of what the particular issue is, um, what should the Christian response be? And sadly, all too often, the Christian response is to circle the wagons and go on the attack against godless sinners who are destroying our country, and to do so through TV interviews or uh, internet blogs or even Facebook posts. Now, of course, 
if Christians are going to be a blessing to the world around us, then we do have to speak up about the nature of sin and how it prevents human flourishing. And often there will be sharp disagreements on that point. But as you engage in that discussion, here are some questions that I want you to wrestle with. Do you consciously or unconsciously think that you're better than the people that you're speaking against? Do you consciously or unconsciously think that their sins are worse than your sins? Is your primary motivation to be a blessing from God or to win an argument? Because these questions tend to reveal to us how much presumption our own hearts are truly capable of and how often our failure to love God and love our neighbor is masked by our own self-righteousness. We should speak out against sin, and even publicly, because we love and respect fellow sinners created in the image of God. But at the same time, we have to be on guard against our heart's sinful tendency to look down on outsiders as if somehow we are less needful of God's mercy than they are. So here's something for you to think about. If your next-door neighbors were a young married couple with two cute kids, and they were really friendly, but they didn't grow up going to church and really didn't know anything about Christianity, I'd imagine you'd have no, uh, there'd be no question that you would invite them over for dinner to get to know them and to want to share the love of Jesus with them. Now let me ask you, (coughs) if they were a Muslim couple, would that change anything? Probably not. Probably you'd still want to invite them over. Now, what if they were abortion rights activists? Would you still invite them over for dinner? What if they were a lesbian couple? What if they were an unmarried couple living together and the man owned a strip club and his living girlfriend was one of his strippers? Would you still invite them to dinner? Or would you rather at that point have nothing to do with them? After all, what would people say if they knew that you were associating with such people? Jesus spent so much of his time with prostitutes and tax collectors that his opponents used it against him, calling him a friend of sinners and a drunk. Are you in danger of the same accusation being leveled against you? Because if not, then your righteousness has very little to do with Jesus' righteousness. Jesus, the only one who is truly righteous, had compassion on sinners and extended his love and kindness to them without fear of being associated with them and while still lovingly calling them to repentance. So what might this look like if the church put this more into practice? In the summer of 2012, uh, Chick-fil-A president Dan Cathy publicly stated his opposition to gay marriage in several interviews. And numerous LGBT activists and politicians immediately called for a boycott of Chick-fil-A, and then conservative groups countered by establishing a Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. Liberal media leveled charges of hate speech and homophobia against Dan Cathy, while conservative media decried how Christian values were under attack. But then something completely unexpected happened. On August 10, 2012, Dan Cathy placed a phone call to Shane Windemeyer, 
the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, a leading national organization for LGBT college students, who at the time was actually protesting Chick-fil-A at campuses all across the country. And in an article that Shane wrote for the Huffington Post, he said that he took the call with great caution. He was sure Dan would tear him apart, give him a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on him. Instead, Dan had called to listen. The questions he asked during the phone call and a series of deeper conversations that Shane went on to have with Dan Cathy and with representatives from Chick-fil-A led to a number of in-person meetings. And in those meetings, Dan told Shane that he had never before had any kind of dialogue like this with a member of the LGBT community. And never once did Dan or anyone from the company ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A, but on the contrary, they listened intently to Shane's concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about how they were being impacted by the controversy. Shane told Dan Cathy about an incident from the previous year where a fraternity set up a table on campus right next to a Chick-fil-A restaurant, and whenever a gay student walked by, the fraternity members would, would chant, we love Chick-fil-A, and then yell uh, anti-gay slurs at the student. And Dan confessed in that moment that he had uh, been naive about the issues at hand and the unintended impact of his company's actions. What was, what was just amazing in this article was how Shane spoke about how Dan had interacted with him. He said that Dan's demeanor was always one of kindness and openness, and that even when Shane continued to directly question Dan's public actions and the groups that his company funded, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and to hear his perspective. And then most amazing of all, later that year, uh, Dan invited Shane to be his personal guest on New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, not just in the stadium, but in his private box with him and his family. Shane wrote, Dan took a great risk in inviting me. He stood to face the ire of his conservative base and a potential boycott by being seen or photographed with an LGBT activist. He could have been portrayed as caving to the gay agenda just by welcoming me. But as a result of his interaction with Dan Cathy, Shane persuaded his organization to call off their boycott of Chick-fil-A, and he now describes Dan Cathy as a friend. Let me just be clear about this. Shane was very explicit in the article that at no time did Dan Cathy back away from his commitment to biblical teaching on the sin of homosexuality. In fact, Shane says, Shane was very clear about the fact that even though he didn't think his mind was going to change, that he hadn't made any, any progress in changing Dan's mind at all. And that the two of them simply agreed that they were in sharp disagreement over the very issue that was at stake. But by reaching out in humility and respect, Dan demonstrated that he didn't believe that his own position before God the judge was any different from Shane's. He modeled the true Christian response to God's justice that Jesus describes in Luke 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, sinners, while the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus reminds us that this is the man who went home justified before God, not the other. 
So as you do engage the world around you, is your faith a point of pride that helps you feel good about yourself in the face of human sin? Or is your own sinfulness such an inescapable reality that you have nothing to say for yourself other than, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Because how you answer that question will determine whether you think you need the gospel as much as other people do. So then, what about verses 1 through 8? The more you come face to face with the hard truth that God's own people don't fare any better when standing before God the judge, at least on their own terms, then there are several questions that may come to mind. That's a rather uncomfortable place to be, and you might have some of these questions. Now, the first one that Paul addresses in verse 1 is, well, then what advantage is there to being part of God's people? What value is there in the things that set us apart from the Gentiles? And you might expect in the context for Paul to say, you know what, there isn't any. But he doesn't. He suggests that there are many benefits, but at this point he's more concerned with correcting a wrong understanding of the benefits than listing all of the right ones. And the next question he asks is, so if the people God chose for himself aren't any more righteous than other people, then does God even really know what he's doing? Can he really be trusted? And before hitting on Paul's answer, let me mention the next two questions he addresses, because really all of these are related. So let me get this straight. If my unrighteousness helps show how righteous God is, then aren't I really doing him a favor? What right does he have to be angry with me? My wrongdoing serves to reveal his glory as a just judge. So the more I sin, the more glory he gets. How can that be so bad? Now, to make sense of this, you have to understand that these are not just rhetorical questions for Paul. He's not just dealing in some abstract arguments that don't mean anything to anybody. But his questions are really getting at the heart of how we all struggle to grapple with this fundamental question. How can a good God create human beings in his own image who then rebel against him and stand before him facing his wrath? and the condemnation and punishment of death. Who's really at fault here? And the truth is, most of us, somewhere deep down in our hearts, sympathize with the way that Adam answered this question in Genesis 3.12. God asked him, Adam, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? And Adam answers, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Let's be honest, God. This is really your fault. If you hadn't put Eve in my life, this would never have happened. You all know how this works. If my job wasn't so miserable, I'd have the energy to spend time with my kids. If my wife were more loving, then I wouldn't struggle so much with lust. If my husband were more thoughtful, then I'd treat him with respect. If my children were more obedient, then I wouldn't be yelling at them so much. And what all of these thoughts common to the human heart have at their core is this notion that something outside of you is ultimately the cause of your sin. And that's going to either lead you in one of two directions. If God's not intimately involved in the circumstances of your life, well then this other thing's the cause and God can hardly hold you responsible 
when he's not even involved in things, or if you think that God is intimately involved with the circumstances of your life, then when things go south, you take the attitude of saying, let's be honest, God, you did this to me. And so whatever I've done, you can't judge me because it's ultimately your fault. You're obligated to forgive me. The 19th century German poet Heinrich Heine, when a priest asked him on his deathbed if he thought that God would forgive him for his sins, supposedly answered, of course he'll forgive me. That's his job. But by contrast, Paul, in response to all of these questions, cites Psalm 51, which we heard read earlier this morning. David is aware of his sin. David, a Jew of Jews, the king of Israel, in response to his sin against God, prays to God and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I was conceived in sin and born in iniquity. My sin is ever before you so that you are justified when you judge and that uh, you prevail in a contest. We put ourselves in the position of judging God as a way of defending ourselves against his righteous judgment of us. Because the truth is there's nothing worse than that feeling of standing in the dock, awaiting the verdict, when we know that we're guilty. We'll do anything to avoid it, especially when the punishment is severe. You know that sinking feeling you get when you've been speeding, and then all of a sudden you see the red and blue lights flashing in the rearview mirror? Or that moment when you realize that you've been caught in a lie, and your mind is racing to figure out another lie to undo the first lie or cover it up so that you don't have to face the consequences. We feel naked and exposed and will do anything to avoid punishment. Better to blame someone else, blame the system, blame the judge, anyone, than to face the cold hand of justice. There's a great ESPN 30 by 30 short film or a film that's really not ultimately about sports itself, but is about the lives of people who are involved in sports. And there's a particular one called the Youngstown Boys. And it's about Ohio University, or Ohio State University head coach, head football coach Jim Tressel, and about one of his tailbacks, uh, Maurice Claret. Maurice grew up in the inner city and came from a really tough background. His father divorced his mother when he was very young and left and wasn't involved in his life. But he was very talented at football, and he was recruited by Ohio State to uh, play as a tailback. And he, in fact, as a true freshman, uh, started the very first game against Texas Tech. And in the first drive, uh, he scored a touchdown. Went on to score 100, to, to rush for 175 yards and to score three touchdowns in the first game and led Ohio State to... Uh, undefeated season, first time in school history, and the national championship. Well, then three things happened. The first was that his car broke down, and he uh, called Coach Tressel and asked him what to do, and Coach sent him to a car dealership that he knew would handle the situation uh, ethically. And uh, a few months after that, when his new car was broken into on campus, an investigation arose as to what is this uh, poor college student doing with a new car. And so rumors and accusations and investigation began to form that really called into question his integrity. The second thing was, he was a very thoughtful young man and was always calculating 
um, how things worked and the best way of doing things and was looking ahead at the possibility of at one point entering the NFL and trying to decide what year would be the best year to do that and how much money he could make and how uh, many years he could play along with injuries and the wear and tear on the body. And when someone asked him in an interview if he thought that uh, he might pursue the NFL draft before finishing Ohio State, he simply said that, you know, it was something that it was off in the future, but he'd have to consider it. And then all of a sudden, the, the fans in Ohio started to turn on him because he had abandoned Ohio State. And then the third thing that happened was a close friend of his who was a, a buddy of his from Youngstown had died in probably a drug-related accident in the week before the national championship game. And uh, Claret had asked permission of the, of the administration to fly home for the funeral because this was his dear friend and he was just really sad about his death and wanted to attend the funeral. Uh, apparently there's paperwork involved and he filled out the paperwork and submitted it. And when the time came for him to make the trip, there was no word from the athletic department. He was very hurt by this and when it became public, the athletic director was asked uh, why it is that that decision was made and he announced that uh, it was a simple matter that Claret hadn't filled out any paperwork and that it wasn't, he didn't have anything to do with it. Claret was deeply hurt by this and felt that what had really happened was that Ohio State didn't want to be associated with uh, some, someone who was involved in drugs. And so he had basically said no while making it look like he hadn't said no and said so publicly. At which point the athletic director clearly turned on him and led the investigation into his misconduct. That would eventually lead to his suspension for a full year from Ohio State. Claret was devastated and uh, pursued trying to go into the NFL draft early, pursued legal channels to get there, wasn't able to do it. And, you know, in, in a certain sense, if anyone had a right to say they'd gotten a raw deal in life, it was Claret. But the more he focused on the injustice of the system, the more his life started to spiral downward. When he had to wait a year before entering the NFL, he spent that next year in L.A. partying, uh, getting involved with alcohol and drugs. And when he came back, once he was actually eligible for the draft, he was such a shadow of his former self that he was picked up very, very late in the draft by the Denver Broncos, but had a year that could only be described at best as lackluster and was cut from the team after one season. He, over the next several years, continued to party, got more and more involved in alcohol and drugs and gangs. And after being put on probation for armed robbery, he was again arrested after leading police in a high-speed chase while driving drunk in a car filled with illegal weapons. He actually seemed kind of surprised at the harsh sentence he received at his trial and went to prison convinced that the world was against him. But finally, during his incarceration, he came to terms with the fact that whatever had been done to him, he had responded by doing what he knew to be wrong. And after some deep soul-searching, he decided to complete his education and focus his life on helping other inner-city kids avoid making the same mistakes that he had. And the point of that story is this. Everyone in this room has had struggles in life, some severe, and in many cases, great wrongs were done to you. And I'm not saying, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
But I am saying that as you grieve over wrongs done to you, it's very easy for your anger over the injustice to lead you to have a demanding heart and a sense of entitlement that relieves you of any responsibility of how you might respond sinfully to the sin that you've experienced. God demonstrates his great compassion for sinners in Jesus. And the surest way to experience healing is to first admit that we're sick. By confessing our sins and asking God to help us change, we demonstrate that God is not only just, but gracious and compassionate. But if you stubbornly stand your ground and constantly put God in the dock, you'll never find peace. Your life will go from bad to worse. So if you're wondering where the gospel is in all of this, let me just reiterate what Ryan has already said so far in Romans. Paul is making his case and expounding the gospel in the book of Romans, but the good news of salvation is only truly good news for those who understand that they are deeply in need of rescue. As Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's the point that Paul has been making thus far, that Jew or Gentile, churched or unchurched, all of us stand guilty of sin before God, justly deserving his wrath. Only when we believe that to be an inescapable fact will the gospel truly be good news. And Paul begins to explain that good news in our passage that we'll look at next week. So let me just leave you with two things briefly to keep in mind as we do begin to consider the gospel and the good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The first is that Paul makes it absolutely clear here that what the gospel doesn't do is make us better than other people. And the second is that the gospel doesn't minimize God's justice. It satisfies it. The more you understand these two things, the more you'll appreciate just how good the good news really is. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we, uh, in our honesty, can confess our sin, grieve over our guilt, that you do, in fact, provide a means of salvation for us. And we do confess that often our sin is to minimize our own sin, to find ways to avoid your justice by uh, thinking ourselves better than others, thinking ourselves beyond the need of mercy, or by criticizing you and making you the cause of our sin rather than acknowledging the evil that is truly in our own hearts. We pray that you would help us to be ruthlessly honest about our sin, to confess it, and that you would grant us the grace to turn from it, to acknowledge your justice, and to cry out for your mercy. For you have demonstrated that you are indeed a compassionate and gracious God uh, who shows mercy to sinners. And for that, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.